0: Lockdown Science.
1: Welcome to Lockdown Science on FM. This show is what happens when two biologists isolate together and need to find something to do instead of meticulously documenting the behaviour of their cat. I'm Ellie.
0: And I'm Andrew. And this week she produced a weird kind of big yawn that turned into a meow. Is that is that normal?
1: I, it's, I wouldn't say it's normal, but I don't think it's COVID. And that's mainly what we're focused on at the moment.
0: Yep. No, that's true. And this week has been absolutely full of COVID news, but that's where this podcast is different. We know that there are enough great scientists and unfortunately lots of less qualified people talking about COVID. So we're bringing you all the science news that has nothing to do with the virus.
1: Yep, this is a COVID-free zone. So sanitize those hands, get two metres away from whoever you're with and settle down for some of the best science we found this week that has absolutely nothing to do with this pandemic that we've somehow found ourselves in.
0: Science of the week.
1: So first up, we have our science of the week quiz, where I test Andrew on some of the science that has been in the press recently. How are we feeling today? Not ready. Not ready. Uh, Are you ever ready? uh, No. Philosophical question: Is anyone ever ready?
0: Yeah, I more ready than you. More ready than me. Yeah, I think so.
1: Okay. Well, you know there is no way to do this other than to press on. So let's just see. You had a score one week of zero. You've not yet done five. So. The yeah. world is your oyster.
0: Yeah. I think... I Did I manage two last week? I
1: think you might have done two. Yeah. It wasn't your worst week.
0: No. So, you know, who knows? Shall we go on? Let's go.
1: Number one. A commemorative coin minted with the face of which musician was sent into space on the 7th of December?
0: Hmm. Is space a clue?
1: Space is a clue. Yes. Think... Is it David Bowie? It's David Bowie. Oh, yeah, I'm going to give you that. I, I, I hardly even gave you a clue there. No.
0: I'm, I was trying to work out whether the fact that you started talking about David Bowie a few days ago was a clue that you hadn't intended to give me.
1: <laughs> I do I do just like David Bowie,
0: though, to be fair. True. But we were discussing how many space-based songs he'd got.
1: Yeah. Well, that's the thing. My next clues for you after Starman were going to be Space Oddity, Life on Mars. Yeah. But you got that. Didn't even need extra clues. Nailed okay. it. Well, this coin was part of the Royal Mint's Music Legends collection and was carried by a balloon to 35656 meters altitude before coming back down to the uk Hmm. it will now be given away as a prize to one lucky winner now do you think that the fact that it's gone into space makes the coin cooler than a regular commemorative coin
0: yes definitely
1: that is actually a selling point for you
0: yeah i think so i mean i generally i'm not particularly fussed by commemorative coins
1: (laughs) you're not like a coin guy
0: no But my question was actually going to be, how did they make sure it landed back in the UK when it had been up that high?
1: I'm not sure because it said balloon, right? So it's not been... That makes it sound less controlled,
0: but I'm sure that's not true. I mean, it means means no propulsion. So theoretically, it goes straight up and straight down. But that's Mm -hmm. a lot of distance for there to be some sort of, you know... Lateral wind to blow it off course, it out out into the Atlantic. That's very true. Maybe it ended up continent. in the sea,
1: and they're just pretending it's the same coin. Yeah, they just it had, produce another one. It
0: actually actually end up in like rural Bulgaria, <laughs> they're they're still hunting for it. They're just we'll give it to a winner in a
1: few weeks. There'll be one very lucky Bowie fan in the middle of rural Bulgaria who will have a piece of history. Yeah. So yeah, did you know that um, Space Oddity was Bowie's first hit single and was released just days before the 1969 Apollo space mission was launched?
0: No, I did not know.
1: I didn't actually realise. So obviously I know the song really well, but I didn't realise that they were, it was so linked with an actual big space event. Mm, It's a good song though.
0: It's a good song. I also wouldn't have realised it was that old. I'm not, I don't know very much about music, but...
1: It's because we're so youthful and these things are before our time, so how would we know?
0: Exactly. We're
1: clinging on to that youth. Yeah. Number two. What have researchers discovered as a new method that honeybees in Vietnam use to prevent their nests being raided by hornets? Hmm.
0: I don't know. Do they build some kind of defence?
1: It is a defence. Well, it's a, yeah. It's a defence of the hive.
0: So, but like a, a structure? Do they, no. they make something out of wax? That,
1: Think of something kind of gross.
0: Uh, the cat?
1: <laughs> other than the cats, i don't know dung smearing yeah their own dung no, no not their own dung so matilla et al found that honeybees in vietnam collect dung from chickens pigs buffaloes and cows and spread dots of it around the entrances to their hives to deter deadly attacks by social hornets hmm.
0: and the hornets don't like it they, no they showed that this actually puts hornets it off. It
1: actually makes a difference. Huh. So so first of all, these these particular hornets, there's a particular species that they were looking at. And clean freaks.
0: Absolutely yeah, clean freaks. Yeah, they
1: just, they, they need to give it a good bleach. But no, they, um, they're um they particularly scary to honeybees because they come in groups. So not all hornets are sociable. Uh, okay.
0: yeah. um, they
1: come in groups, they chew at the entrance of the hive. And once they're inside, they kill the adult honeybees and they eat their larvae or, or take the larvae away to feed their own young.
0: Mm. So...
1: Basically, honeybees don't want these guys in their hive. Yeah. And the scientists found that the honeybees increased dung spreading in response to increased risk of an attack from these dangerous species of hornet.
0: Mm, interesting. Yeah,
1: exactly. So it is. it does seem to be a genuine like response. Yeah. And they found that at a moderate to high level of dung dotting, the presence of these spots of dung around the hive entrances did deter hornet attacks. Mm. So, this is an example of honeybees essentially using tools. Oh yeah, it's mad.
0: Didn't think about that. Yeah, yeah, isn't that awesome. That is very cool. Wow, that's weird. But it's so it's only been discovered in Vietnam.
1: Yes. So what they're saying is this could be this is an interesting adaptation. And um, Vietnam isn't the only place where um, where honeybees are threatened by these social hornets because yeah. it's also happening in in the north of America. Mm. But in the north of America, there's no evidence that this kind of defense behavior has evolved so you know maybe something similar will evolve in time yeah but without these kind of defenses they're a lot more vulnerable
0: interesting i'd love to think about how that one started one one rogue honeybee returned one day and rather than bringing back kind of pollen and nectar is all or- brought back a bit of dung. And the other guys all, were
1: like, "Oh, Dave. Oh, why? Oh, oh. not again. Oh. Why
0: why are you like oh, this?" Oh, Dave, that's disgusting. And then he starts plastering it on the wall of the hive and then like, "Oh, oh come Dave. on, you're ruining the feng shui." And then and then they're like, "Oh, wait a minute. We haven't had a hornet attack for a while."
1: And Dave's like, "Yes. Yeah. Yes, mate."
0: It was the poo and they're like, "Yeah, yeah, of course it is. Of course it is. Just can get it off?" And then it kind of goes on and
1: yeah, I mean, to be fair, I reckon if I smeared faeces around our door, we wouldn't have to deal with any visitors anymore.
0: Uh, true. Um, I mean, we currently don't really get any visitors anyway, so I'm going to say don't bother. Don't. Okay. Please.
1: okay, Okay. but, you know, it's just in the bank in case I have to. Just right okay. there in the thought bank. Yeah. Just bearing yeah. in mind, just bearing in mind.
0: Um, can you Can you move it to the section of the bank that's sort of in a series of safes with so many different combination locks that you'll forget how to get in there and never speak of this again.
1: You stifle me so much. <laughs> Number three. At the start of December, Nepal and China officially agreed on the height for Mount Everest. Can you tell me what height it is?
0: Oh, what? <laughs> but no, 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 no I'm, I'm being really
1: nice. I will give you a 10% leeway. Oh.
0: So generous. Um... Oh, no. uh, Is it about...
1: This is from sea level.
0: Yeah. um, (gasps) 8,900
1: metres? I'm going to give you that. Oh, yes. Did you you see that somewhere? No, I
0: didn't. That is so impressive. No, my only point of reference was the fact that I actually... Very luckily, I mean, quite a long time ago now. When I was at college, I went to I went on a trip to the Himalayas. You know about Oh,
1: this. that is quite a good and, reference. Yeah. yeah,
0: and we went across the highest navigable pass in the world, which mm. I know was over five thousand meters. Mm. Just so that was my sort of reference. So I had to just kind of go. Well, that's the highest navigable pass. So obviously there are going to be lots of higher non-navigable passes. And then add a bit. And I was fairly sure it wasn't over 10,000 metres.
1: So what did you just say?
0: 8,900.
1: It's 8,848.86. Yes, you're well within your 10% margin there. I feel like giving you an extra point for that, but I'm not going to. Anyway, so Mount Mount Everest sits on the border between Nepal and China, as you know. But this is the first time that the two countries have agreed on a height. Yeah, so previously, Nepal assessed the mountain to be 8,848 metres high. And China said it was slightly lower at 8,844.43 metres high. That 0.43 makes the difference. So the previous discrepancy has mostly been because China doesn't acknowledge the snow cap as being, you know, the top snow cap as being part of the mountain's height. And Nepal thinks it should be. So the new height was determined by new surveys by both China and Nepal in 2019 and 2020. Now, these surveys were partly undertaken because the area suffered a huge earthquake in 2015, which some geologists thought may have reduced the mountain's height. And because mountains do grow slightly over time because of movement in the tectonic plates below them. So new measurements are needed over time to ensure accuracy. Do you know how you measure a mountain?
0: With a really, really long tape measure.
1: Uh, no, I think that would have been easier, but probably less accurate.
0: Mm. Um, with lasers?
1: Well, to be fair, that's why I, what I might have partly assumed. So firstly, you need to determine what sea level is, yeah. which is more complicated than it sounds. Yeah. So with help from surveyors in India, Nepal chose a point close to their border with India and China used the Yellow Sea. So that tells them where the mountain essentially starts from. Yep. But the measurements didn't just involve calculations from the ground. Teams actually had to go to the summit. Wow. The Nepalese team went up in 2019 and the Chinese team in 2020 so that they could independently place summit beacons from which they could measure the distance to other known points on the way up and then use trigonometry calculations to work out the angles between the points. Mm. Trigonometry.
0: Yeah. Oh, Old school, right? Yeah, well, you know, that all that maths at school is yes. important.
1: So, anyone who doesn't remember their GCSE maths, trigonometry allows you to work out the length of a side of a triangle from the lengths of the other sides and the size of the angles between them. I think that's a fair yeah. sort of brief summary. So, in maths class, this is usually taught in a pretty abstract way, I'd say. But in this case, it's actually really practical because the length in question that they want to find is the height of the mountain. What yeah. Voilà! GCSE Maths just became sexier.
0: Yeah. So there you go, kids. Next time you're in maths class thinking, oh, when am I ever going to use trigonometry in real life? That's the answer. When you're up the top of Everest measuring its height.
1: Yeah, see, this is the thing. I mean, how could that be cooler? Yeah. Those teams going up to the top of Everest, absolute badass geologists, mathematicians, whatever they are. Legends. Legends.
0: Yeah. Back to the sea level thing, though. So I once heard a stat which i've mostly forgotten which is how all good stories start but oh yeah i i think it was it was along the lines that the sea level from one side of indonesia to the other changes in height by i want to say six meters but that's i mad. almost wonder whether it was more than that that's not that's not like saying one side of the world to the other that's not a particularly big difference between essentially the indian ocean and the pacific ocean in terms of distance and yet six meters in height and you just sort of think well, how does it not level off. Yeah.
1: I know. I don't get it either. No. It's really it's that was that was really surprising to me. I had to do a bit more reading up around this because I was like I mean sea is sea, right?
0: Yeah. No. But when when they're measuring the height of a mountain to the, you know, three decimal places, mm. you kind of go, well, yeah, the sea level height is going to make a difference. Yeah.
1: Uh, I just love this. I mean, it's partly because it sounds like a combination of, like, exploration and maths in, like, some kind of wonderful union. I mean, so, okay. it's 2020, right? So both teams did use GPS systems to add accuracy to their calculations. Yeah. But it's just such a great effort, and I love that they finally agreed.
0: Yeah, and they've measured it to the nearest millimetre. I know, it's so good. (laughs) You kind of think, why?
1: (laughs) Because knowledge. Because we should know these things, right? There we have it. Mount Everest just got a little bit taller. And just when I was thinking of giving it a go.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, those extra few centimetres make all the difference.
1: Uh, Yes, exactly. I don't want to exert myself. (laughs) Anyway, number four. What good news about Blakeney Point's colony of little terns was released this week?
0: Uh, Was 2020 their best breeding season on record?
1: This summer, they had their best breeding season for 26 years. Mm. I'll give you that point. It's it, it's a very good breeding season. That's yeah. the important thing.
0: Was it because there was less disturbance because of the <sighs> the virus that cannot be named?
1: This, <laughs> just like Voldemort. Um,
0: we, we promised that we can't mention it. Yeah, that's so, true. That's but true. then, you know, I'm kind of wondering mm, whether it's relevant. I
1: think we do have to very briefly mention it here. That is one theory. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, first of all, we should talk about what a little turn is because we we do a lot of bird-related things. We kind of take it for granted. So little terns are a species of bird. It's on the decline in Europe. So according to the RSPB, the UK's breeding population of little terns is about 1,900. But this latest breeding data from Blakeney Point is super promising. This summer, the National Trust Rangers counted 154 pairs of nesting birds and 201 chicks. The most in 26 years. So, going back to your question, the National Trust does think that this boom could be due to fewer visitors coming to the Norfolk Dunes because of lockdown. Mm. Yeah, not just that, though. So, because there were also fewer predator attacks, partly caused by the terns nesting more densely, so they were getting safety in numbers, and partly because the rangers were using anti-predator measures to keep them safe. okay, without focusing too much on the pandemic... I think it will be really interesting to see any studies coming out in future looking at the difference between species populations, you know, before, during, after the lockdowns, see what effect human movement is having on animals.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's really tricky, isn't it? Because lots of things and, you know, birds included, will will show big annual fluctuations in, you know, breeding success or even population size for short-lived species. So... It's hard to know in any given year whether, you know, it's the warm weather or the dry weather or the wet weather or the cold weather or whatever. Or the
1: once-in-a-lifetime pandemic.
0: Yeah, um, that's had had the effect. So it's kind of hard to pull it apart. But if if this year ends up kind of standing out for things in in a way that's sort of, you know, beyond the other kind of long-term trend around all of the noise then you kind of think, well, then maybe it's got something to do with it.
1: Yeah, I feel like it's going to be like a lot of research projects potential coming out of this year. I mean, on so many things, and that's definitely not what we should be focusing on. But, you know, seeing as we don't like to talk about that on this show, there's something constructive. Yeah, yeah. Moving quickly on from the uh, thing we shall not name. Number five. Now this is where I bring in your one Christmassy reference for the show because it's <laughs> Christmas next week and I am nothing if not festive.
0: So is this is this our Christmas special? This is our Christmas you got, special. You've got us one question for our Christmas special. It's not even a Christmassy question. I've just Okay, good.
1: <laughs> anyway, it's what you're getting. To Become One by the Spice Girls was Christmas number one in nineteen ninety six. What a time. Yeah. But on the 21st of December, which two celestial bodies will get so close in our vision of the night sky that they will appear
0: that they have become one? Uh, Jupiter and Saturn.
1: Yes. Uh, Did you like my Spice Girls reference?
0: Yeah, very good. (laughs) Thank you. Very good. Yeah, I did wonder where you were going with it.
1: i I was taking you on a magical mystery tour. It's Jupiter and Saturn. Although they are really millions of kilometres apart, they will align from our perspective such that they will look like one big kind of double planet.
0: Weird. Yeah. I really want to see this. I know. So, I've actually, I Actually, the reason I know this is because I saw it mentioned in an email from the Cambridge University Astronomical Society.
1: little plug there for them.
0: Like, I don't know, two or three weeks ago, they mentioned it in an email And I wrote it in my diary because I was like, that is so cool. Like, you know, there's loads of stuff that you can see in the night sky. And, you know, you could spend ages looking at it, but you've kind of got to know what you're looking for sometimes. And, you, you know, we're busy and it's often cloudy. But I was like, that is so weird that I really want to see. And I know kind of what I'm looking for with planets. Like, they're much easier to sort of find than stars.
1: Yeah. Well, assuming clear skies, shortly after dark, the two planets should appear together in the southwestern sky, like this little Mm. double planet. And I mentioned the 21st of December in the question because that's the date that they'll be closest. But they are already pretty close. And if you keep your eye on the skies over the next month or so, you'll see them move closer together and then further apart as the days go on. So if it is a really cloudy night on the 21st you'll still see like general kind of interesting proximity around those
0: dates yeah. so that's what that's less than a week away so we mm. should start looking yeah actually, we should actually
1: yeah, yeah yeah so it's so it's not long after it's gone dark you should yeah. start looking because if you're kind of where we are it will dip to below the horizon okay. relatively fast
0: yeah so tonight tonight probably would have been perfect had we yeah, thought it. So.
1: probably but instead we're working on a podcast yeah I'll regret nothing And if you're not sure yet, despite Andrew's clear excitement, whether this is worth looking out for, remember that it is incredibly rare. So the last time these two planets appeared this close was March of 1226. Yeah.
0: Wow. Yeah.
1: Even you're not old enough to remember that. And (laughs) the next time will be in 2400 2400? 2400? how do i pronounce that i don't know okay <laughs> it's a time okay. so far
0: away i can't pronounce it closer in the future than it was in the past yes but still probably beyond a human lifetime
1: i don't intend to live for that long
0: no <laughs> and even if i do i think i might have plans yeah, <laughs> yeah <exactly. laughs> um the other thing that i think is worth mentioning is Kind of aside from whether you're looking at them next to each other or not, Jupiter and Saturn are really cool to see in the night sky because even with a pair of binoculars, you can kind of make them out. Like they're bigger than stars, mm. and so like we we've done this. Like you get a, a decent pair of binoculars on them, and you can just about make out the moons around Jupiter. Yeah,
1: you really have to really have to concentrate, but yeah. you
0: can. Um, and and if you kind of watch them. You know, if you see it a few different times, you'll see that these tiny little specks on either side of it appearing in different positions on different nights. It
1: is very Um, cool. Which
0: is actually something which I think Galileo spent a long time watching this. And that was part of how they deduced that not everything revolved around the Earth.
1: Also, in case any listeners want to tell their friends about this and they want to sound like they know what they're talking about, the meeting of two planetary bodies in the night sky is referred to as, do you know what it's called?
0: Um,
1: A Great Conjunction. So, try okay. asking whoever you're with if they'd like to observe the Great Conjunction with you. Sounds fancier.
0: does. It does. very fancy.
1: Very. Anyway, at the end of that round, you got... You got four.
0: Yeah, and a bonus point.
1: And a What was O Oh, for Everest. They're
0: getting so close with Everest.
1: So, I'll give you like 4.5. I got five? No, nah, I'm giving you 4.5 4. and you should be glad about that oh. much. Anyway, that's really good. 4.5 out of 5. That is your highest You don't score have yet. to
0: say that in such a patronising way.
1: <laughs> I am <laughs> genuinely <laughs> proud of
0: you. <laughs> oh, thank you.
1: But yeah, maybe 5 out of 5 next week. Who knows? Oh,
0: don't say that. You've, you've, you've jinxed it now. Journal Club. Right, it's time for Journal Club. Do you want to go first?
1: Yeah, I'll go first. This week... I'm going to be covering a listener suggestion. You know how I love a listener suggestion. So this week, Kate Howlett tagged me on Twitter on a thread by clinical psychology PhD candidate Ben Katz, where he broke down an amazing study he had chanced upon. I read the thread and then had to head over to the paper because I was sold. So the paper is called Visual Discrimination of Species in Dogs by Othier Darian et al. It's from 2013, but as you'll come to realise, it's a paper that really should not be lost by the sands of time. The paper is based on the premise that for most social interactions, an animal has to know whether it's interacting with a member of its own species or not. But as I mentioned in the title, dogs. Dogs are incredibly diverse. Like what what we call a dog might look like a Rottweiler or it might look like a pug. and yeah. You know, when you come to think about it, what is the similarity in looks? What what
0: is the essence of dogginess?
1: Yeah, like if I said to you, you had to describe what a dog looks like, because an alien just turned up and wants to ask you, what would you say? What's a dog? What does a dog look like?
0: Yeah, four legs and a bark.
1: <laughs> okay, four legs, but that could be a cat.
0: Yeah, and a I don't know nicer temperament.
1: <laughs> but but the dogs can't tell that. So just a yeah.
0: picture of a dog. No, um it's weird isn't it so this is this is actually something um that that my mom has always said of like how do even little kids know that a dog is a dog mm. and yet you know if you a little kid will tell you that a chihuahua is a dog when it looks more like a cat yeah when and a great dane is a dog when it looks more like a shetland pony you yeah. know and it's, it's an innate thing that like we know but it's very hard to put your finger on yeah one.
1: what is the essence of dogness I don't, I don't know what it is. Yeah. Again, I'm going to go nerdy now. This reminds me of Plato, right? There's this idea in Plato that um, you could have, like, perfect forms of different things. Yeah. And each thing on Earth is just embodying sort of part of that form. So, like, somewhere there is the perfect form of dog. And every dog on Earth partakes partially in that perfect form of dog. Ah, and that's how okay. we know it's a so, dog. So
0: do, you, so do you get... Is there a dog which is fully the perfect form of dog no it's just
1: it's just the form. it is the form of dog
0: okay I feel like there are going to be a lot of listeners who are dog owners who, who are <laughs> pretty convinced that their dog is the perfect form of dog
1: you know they can think that that's fine we all think our dogs are the best dogs yeah right? that's okay there's not really a practical thing it's more of a it's more of an abstract theory but okay. all dogs are good dogs that's all I'm going to say for now so this paper it's great The methods section starts with what is essentially a visual cast list of the canine participants. (laughs) And this is partly what makes the paper so great. So there are nine dogs that participated in the study. And if you check out the paper, you can see a little photo of each of them and their name. So introducing Babel. Bag, Bahia, Bounty, Canale, Cusco, Cyan, Sweet and Vodka. <laughs> all great dog names.
0: Yeah, I love the idea of a dog called Vodka.
1: And Vodka the dog. <laughs> I like Bag, Bag the
0: dog. Yeah.
1: All dogs look very different to each other and they were all checked to make sure they didn't have any visual or behavioural problems. In summary, they were all certified very good dogs and very qualified to partake in the study. The dogs underwent a training programme whereby they would be shown two screens, one with a photo of a dog and one with a different animal, including humans, rabbits, sheep and reptiles. And the human that was training them would ask them to choose the dog photo. And if they went up to the correct screen, the human would give them a treat. Now, there are 11 of these tasks in total. I've kind of sped over a bit there because each task got more complicated than the previous one. There were different sort of factors they'd involved. So whether, you know, it was just one picture of the same dog coming up against a picture of a cow or whether they kept swapping in, different species all yeah. that kind of stuff so theoretically the tasks were getting harder and they could only move on to the next task if they'd completed two consecutive rounds of the current task with a score of 10 out of 12 correct choices or more so essentially this allowed the researchers to see not only that the dogs were learning but how fast they were learning yeah. So the researchers then analysed the data to see how well you can actually train a dog to choose the screen with the dog on it. The point here is that you can train a dog to choose the photo of the dog only if the dog already understands what a dog looks like. What they were training into them wasn't the ability to recognise dogs, but the understanding that if they walked up to the screen containing what they already knew was a dog, they would be given a treat. Yeah, does that make sense? Yeah. So it's like if they are able to be trained to pick out the dog, it means they recognize the essence of dog. Yeah. The data shows that dogs are generally very good at learning to choose photos of dogs over animals that aren't dogs. Now, notice the word generally there.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I say
1: generally. Because one dog was less good than the others at this.
0: Oh
1: poor Bounty. Oh Bounty is a very sweet looking border collie
0: and clearly a very good girl. Oh yeah.
1: But she's what not necessarily the- she's not necessarily a smart girl.
0: Oh, that's that's really surprising because you think of Border Collies as being
1: smart. I know. Bounty was not entirely blessed in that department, I've got to say. Mm. So although the tasks get more difficult, they are kind of similar in nature. So you'd expect the dogs learn to tackle the tasks such that, you know, they will need to sort of relearn how to do the next task, but they shouldn't be back to square one each time they progress to the next one. But Bounty really struggled with task 10. So much of the researchers analysed the data with and without Bounty's data to look at the difference. Bounty took 39 sessions on task 10 just to pass it. And the
0: others did it in two sometimes. Well, yeah, I mean, well, they so could do it in two.
1: They could do it really, really quickly, such that if you include bounty's data in the analyses it looks like task 10 was significantly more difficult for the dogs than task 3 but if you take out bounty's data task 10 was slightly easier than task (laughs) 3 but no shade here bounty is clearly a very good dog and it matters what's in her heart not her brain
0: also in her defense i thought while you were talking Uh, We recognise dogs by visual cues, Mm. but I'm going to guess that dogs mostly recognise dogs by olfactory cues because they're very scent-oriented animals. So probably the smell of dog is much more important to them than the sight of dog.
1: I mean, no, that, that is true that they do have very strong olfactory senses, but putting bounty's blip aside what the study shows from the other dogs is that dogs can recognize other dogs from multiple angles just from a 2d picture yes and they can tell the difference between lots of very different looking dogs and other species
0: yes i mean i know that i just i <laughs> just trying to stick up for bounty because i really like border collies
1: <laughs> so okay so bounty wasn't absolutely terrible about this bounty had quite a bad blip but she was learning in some ways but what this does suggest is that it's not just that dogs recognise based on smell. Yeah. They can recognise yeah. based on faces as well, which is really interesting. Yeah. Now, if, if anyone listening doesn't want to read this paper, please just at least head over and look at the dog's headshots. Absolute <laughs> legends. <laughs> so, Just a reminder again, that's Visual Discrimination of Species in Dogs by Altier Derian et al. It's worth it. It's worth it just for the headshots. So thank you, Kate, for sending that paper my way. I love science and dogs, so obviously this is going to be a winner for me.
0: That's excellent.
1: Now, what have you got? Is it going to
0: beat headshots of dogs in no, paper? No. Uh, like Sometimes I, I would think maybe, but I, I don't think anything beats headshots of, of dogs in a paper this week I've been delving into psychology mm, yeah yeah specifically understanding human gambling behavior okay there's a, there's a key reason why I, why this paper grabbed my attention but uh, yeah I want I want to build so back in 2010 Matthew Rockloff and Nancy Greer at the Institute for Health and Social Science Research in Queensland Australia wanted to understand more about how a persons predisposition to gambling problems and their current mood interact to determine the risks that they take whilst gambling. Mm -hmm. It's pretty important stuff. It's got implications for how we might go about helping or protecting people with gambling problems. Specifically, the researchers were interested in whether participants' arousal Mm -hmm. further interacted with mood and predisposition to affect their gambling behaviour.
1: There's arousal in this context. Yeah,
0: so I'm going to take a quick detour to explain that here... Arousal doesn't necessarily mean sexual.
1: Yeah, I was I was hoping.
0: Which I will admit makes the title of the paper much less unnerving than it was when I read it with that connotation. Do I want to know? I'm actually going to not tell you it yet because it's something of a spoiler. So, so we'll get to that (laughs) as well. So, arousal in this context means a heightened state of awareness. So, a you know a kick of adrenaline, for example. So. Rockloff and Greer explain that how we experience emotions can be broken down into two components, the nature of the physiological arousal and the label which we attach to it. And in most cases, these are the same. So if an oncoming car veers into your lane on the road, you're pretty correct in feeling afraid. Mm. But in certain circumstances, we can mislabel emotions. I didn't really get this until they explained it with an example. Unfortunately, the example they use is kind of as funny as as the paper that we're talking about. So it's it's a great little diversion. Yeah,
1: because I'm I'm kind of... I'm still trying to work out exactly what this means. So go for it. Yeah,
0: okay. They describe an experiment from
1: 1974. Right. Pre-ethics. Pre-ethics.
0: Yeah, uh, I don't know. I I was trying to work out whether, whether this fitted modern ethical approval or not. In which men were interviewed by, I quote, an attractive woman.
1: Oh, yes, the perfect platonic form of woman. (laughs)
0: Yes. (laughs) On either a 70-metre high wire and plank suspension bridge or a three-metre high sturdy bridge. Okay. Yeah, pretty bizarre. (laughs) So, following the interview, the female experimenter gave the men her phone number and offered to explain the study in more detail at a later date. Apparently... The men who were interviewed on the 70-metre high bridge were more likely to call the number because they misattributed the physiological arousal resulting from the fear of the high bridge to feelings of sexual attraction to the interviewer.
1: <laughs> but she was attractive, right? Like Yes. OK. <laughs>
0: yes, but somehow more attractive to the men who'd been on a 70-metre high bridge with her. I feel
1: like there are lessons we can learn from this I... in attracting a mate maybe take someone you fancy to a dangerous no don't do that no
0: <laughs> yeah so i wasn't necessarily convinced by that result but i it kind of illustrates the point that they're getting at
1: I yes think. i get that
0: unfortunately it's not the paper we're discussing so it's just the context so we'll carry on with the theory so Rockloff and greer suggests that in gamblers states of physiological arousal caused by external influences may be misattributed as either an a lucky or an unlucky feeling So in a previous experiment, Rockloff and Dyer had shown that a blast of white noise during a gambling session caused people who have gambling problems to lower their average bet sizes.
1: Oh, what, because it freaked them out?
0: Well, so they sort of posit that they kind of felt unlucky.
1: Okay, so white noise makes you unlucky.
0: Yeah, whereas by comparison, people with few or no gambling problems actually placed higher bets.
1: Oh, okay, that's
0: good. Yeah, so they suggest that it might be to do with mood. Hmm. so people with gambling problems were more prone to misattribute an arousal as an unlucky feeling whereas those without gambling problems misattributed it as a lucky feeling that's very weird mm. so it was only a two second blast of noise hmm. it wasn't like a protracted thing but it was yeah they they kind of guessed that this might be something to do with the individual's mood as well as their gambling predisposition interesting but that was sort of speculation so in this paper Rockloff and Greer set out to test it. Mm -hmm. So what did they use to heighten their participants' arousal?
1: Well, presumably not more white noise because that's been done before. No. I'm going to go with something scary, right? Because if we go back to the bridge example, then you want to make someone feel a heightened sense for arousal, I suppose you'd describe it, because they're scared, right?
0: Yes, I guess so, yeah. So I also thought, you know, they could have... They could have had, like, a burst of exercise for the, for kind of an adrenaline rush yeah. or something, but I guess that might have other consequences. Exposure to an attractive young man or woman, maybe right, that yeah. would... Yeah, I don't know. No. Anyway, you're right on the fear front. They handed them a crocodile.
1: They handed them a crocodile?
0: Yes. They <laughs> gave them a one-metre-long saltwater crocodile to hold.
1: I am sorry, this escalates so quickly. <laughs> <laughs> what?
0: Yeah. Yeah, right. I, mean, I
1: was suggesting maybe like just a louder noise, like a more high-pitched noise. Yeah, jump
0: out and yell, boo. Yeah,
1: just just hand them a crocodile, actually. Just, yeah. We've got a few so,
0: of them. So, for reasons that aren't really explained, the researchers based their study in a crocodile centre in Queensland. As you do. And they carefully split visitors to the centre into either a controlled group or a test group. So the control group got to play a gambling game before their crocodile tour. And the test group did so immediately after their tour had ended with them holding a crocodile. (laughs) So this was a normal part of the tour that they get like an hour-long tour of the farm and they see the crocodiles. And then at the end, they're given the opportunity to hold the crocodile. And most people say, yes, I'll hold the crocodile. So
1: they were expecting it in some way.
0: They were expecting a crocodile. Yes, exactly. Yes. 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 And I think at the point when they entered, they were offered the chance to take part in this research. So, as I said, it's not quite clear from the paper why holding a crocodile was chosen as a stimulus, possibly because the authors had already conceived the title that they wanted to use as a hook for their paper, Mm -hmm. which I can now reveal as being never smile at a crocodile betting on electronic gaming machines is intensified by reptile-induced arousal.
1: Oh, reptile-induced arousal should never be a phrase. No, that's not a phrase I ever thought I'd say.
0: (laughs) But, you know, we've both just said it. Here we are. Here we are. But at least I've explained that in this context, arousal is, is sort of the broad sense of the word.
1: General emotional excitement.
0: Yes. Anyway, back to the experiment. So participants were given $20 as compensation for participating. And they were then encouraged to gamble the $20 on a fruit machine simulation. Mm -hmm. So the idea of this was to reinforce the idea that it was their own money they were gambling. So it makes the experience more real. But I did like the line in the paper where they had to sort of explain that they they were given the money... And then offered the opportunity to gamble and then if some of them were reluctant so the research assistant had to kind of encourage them that actually they did want to gamble anyway. It's Just sort of baiting people into betting.
1: Was she an attractive woman on a rickety bridge
0: by any chance? Yeah I don't know they didn't they did mention whether it was a man or a woman. After gambling participants were then asked to complete some questionnaires to determine their mood and their predisposition to gambling problems. And what they found was actually quite interesting. In the group of participants who reported no gambling problems, exposure to the crocodile reduced the size of the bets they placed, pretty Mm. much regardless of their emotional state. So they became more Mm. risk-averse after exposure to the crocodile. However, in the group with gambling problems, it got a bit more interesting. So participants with high negative emotions who were not exposed to the crocodile placed much higher bets than either the participants with less negative emotions who are not exposed to the crocodile, or than the participants with high negative emotions but no gambling problems. So apparently this fits with a the theory that among gamblers, high-risk gambling, i.e. placing larger bets, is associated with both low arousal, i.e. boredom, mm. and a negative emotional state such as anxiety. And that sort of triggers higher gambling. But for these at-risk gamblers with high negative emotions, exposure to the crocodile acted to reduce their bets considerably mm. sort of similar response to the people with no gambling problems but with a much greater strength of effect so they start from a much higher point and they reduce to a much lower point and the re- researchers suggest that this demonstrates the misattribution of the reptile induced arousal to a feeling of bad luck okay. because, of yeah. the, because of the because of they
1: feel negative about the situation exactly. yeah. yeah
0: because of the negative state but In the group of participants with gambling problems that had fewer negative emotions, the opposite effect occurred. So in the absence of a crocodile, they placed low bets. But after exposure to a crocodile, they placed higher bets, apparently having misattributed the arousal from the crocodile to a feeling of luckiness about gambling.
1: But this makes it so complicated for trying to work out how this would be therapeutic.
0: Yeah, it does. It's really... It took me quite a while to kind of get my head around this paper and actually it's it's much easier. There's a really neat figure where they show their key results and it makes it much clearer than trying to explain it in words. So if if listeners are confused, I would encourage you to probably go and look up the paper because the the figures are much easier to interpret. But that's about it. But it's quite cool. So the take-home message is that, yeah, predictors of gambling behaviour are pretty complicated and arise from a combination of predisposition, emotional state and environmental cues. And so you've got to kind of know a lot about a person and their situation.
1: Yeah, because I was going to say, when you first started saying about the crocodile lowering the risk-taking behaviour, I was going to say, okay, well, there's something you can do there, something therapeutic. I'm not sure exactly how you make it ethical, but there's something you can do. Yeah, But if it's based on the mental state at the time that they're gambling, how do you work that out? Yeah,
0: no, hard, hard. But I think the other take-home message is that taking a crocodile to a casino is a good idea if you're feeling down, but it's pretty risky if you're feeling good. Or maybe it's just a bad idea anyway. Isolation recommendations. Well, now it's time for our isolation recommendation. What have you got?
1: Well, so if you've heard the show before, you'll know that isolation recommendations are things that we suggest you might like to do if you are in lockdown or, to be honest, just don't feel like leaving the house, but you want to do something science-y. And this week, I'm going to big up a fellow podcast by Dr. Kirsty Macleod, who is a behavioural ecologist at the University of Lund. It's called the WE podcast. And in this case, WE stands for Women in Ecology and Evolution. That's W-E-E. Now, Kirsty talks to different women scientists each week to find out about their research, their experiences and their philosophies on life and work. So she has different features on each show, including interviews and group chats that help to get a different perspective on women in science. I was lucky enough to be invited to be part of her roundtable discussion for episode five, alongside Jade Blue from the University of Edinburgh and Dr Hannah Mumby from the University of Hong Kong. And we chatted about friendships in academia like how easy they are to keep when people are always moving countries, whether it's OK to have friendship with your academic supervisors and how friendships in general can be helpful in your career. And this actually got me thinking a lot. I mean, that that's a sort of big topic and it's one that I guess had just sort of always been at the back of my head and I hadn't really vocalised. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of friendships are integral to life.
0: Yeah, and also, you know, in a, any kind of work environment, there's always going to be links between friendships and how well you work together and you know in an environment like academia where you move around a lot whether you're you're likely to want to work with someone again in the future or kind of avoid them at the other end of the spectrum i suppose
1: yeah exactly it it was a really it was a really interesting topic and uh, actually being on the podcast was just really great because it made me think about it and probably appreciate it more to be honest So this episode and all the others have also discussed important issues like being disabled in academia, creating work-life balance and how to cope with your research during a pandemic. I said the P word, I'm so sorry, but... I'd really recommend that you start from episode one and just binge it. I love this podcast because it feels honest and open in its approaches to some really big topics. Kirsty is a really engaging host and she brings on a really diverse range of guests, which just keeps it interesting and and relevant to a wider audience. So, yeah, you can go to www.thewepodcast.org and head over to the podcast Twitter page, which is at the underscore we underscore podcast. Hmm,
0: sounds good. I'm I'm impressed that Kirsty manages to get that many people on for every episode.
1: Yeah, loads like guess.
0: Wow. I mean, you know, us preparing this like takes a while, but essentially we read some papers and we, you know, we write write a script and mm. you, you prepare some questions, but like to, to like reach out to people and get that many people willing to kind of come on and chat about stuff?
1: I think it takes a phenomenal amount of organisational power because so some of her episodes have what she calls, I think, um, elevator pitches where different people come on and just do a very quick summary of their work. So obviously that's quite a lot of people yeah. and then every episode has a sort of main scientist talking about their work and their life um, so on episode five which I was on that was Dr Hannah Mumby yeah. and then she'll have someone on to talk about a paper that they're doing and that'll be someone different and then the round table I think it's generally Kirsty plus three others and one of those three is likely to be the, the sort of main scientist from that yeah. week but yeah I mean we're talking about a lot
0: of people wow that's it's, amazing
1: like it's a lot of organisations but... making
0: the most of friendships in academia though yeah that's that's, yeah, it's true. Yeah, Good connection. Exactly.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, but it's really great because there are so many people on it. It does keep it varied. It keeps it interesting. And she does manage to get people with a lot of interesting topics to talk about. People yeah. who actually, you know, have some wisdom to share. Yeah. And also it's nice because you kind of hear from people who, like, maybe you see them on Twitter or you see the publications and you think, wow, like, they're super impressive. Surely they're not having, you know, the problems I have. Yeah. And then, you know, they're there talking about all the barriers that they've had to getting to where they are. And you go, Yeah, you know what? It's it is hard. It's, like
0: it's, it's the same for everyone. It's the same yeah. for
1: everyone. You know, some people obviously have additional societal barriers than other people, but ultimately everyone that you see has got really far, they haven't just
0: breezed through it. Yeah, you know? when you when you're talking about things like work life balance and yeah, coping with you know, the stress of moving between different locations for your job and how that plays onto things like friendships, then that's stuff that's going to be experienced by everyone.
1: Yeah, and I think it is also really important for accessibility when you are hearing about matters like, you know, disability and race and gender. And it's just important to sort of bear in mind when you're, talking to other people in academia, that people have a lot of different things going on mm. behind the scenes that you might not really think about. Yeah. So, yeah, really good podcast. That's the We Podcast. Check it out on its website or on the Twitter page. Well, that is unfortunately all we have time for. But from next episode, we're excited to bring in a new feature. We had a few people saying after our last episode that they enjoyed the nerdiness of me chastising Andrew for using a Latin ending on the end of a word of Greek origin. If you haven't heard it yet, then he thought the correct plural of octopus would be octopi. What a dork. We had a couple of people who, who quite enjoyed that and we received a request for a regular animal etymology slot.
0: Oh, this yeah. is going to be bold.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, I don't need to be asked twice to combine my two loves of word nerdery and nature. So I'm game.
0: You up for it? Yeah, I, I saw this as well. I don't know how we're going to find this many things to, to talk about. But
1: Well, Kate's given us a few suggestions.
0: OK, OK.
1: And we always have our email address. So we didn't have quite have time to set it up for this episode. But do watch this space. And if you've got any animal names that you want to be featured on that section of the pod just get in touch because we do indeed have an email address. It's lockdownsciencepodcast at gmail.com.
0: Thanks to those of you who could tell how excited Ellie was on the last show about our new email address and humoured us, I mean, humoured her by emailing over some lovely messages. It was really nice to hear from you. It
1: was. And there was no hate mail. So that's a win-win.
0: Yeah, well, now you've just encouraged that one as well, haven't you? So anyway, if you've got a suggestion for a fun paper that you, you think deserves a mention in Journal Club, do email us at lockdownsciencepodcast at gmail.com. And you can also follow us on Twitter. I'm at Andrew underscore Bladen. And
1: I'm at Eleanor underscore Bladen. Otherwise, make sure you listen in two weeks time for another episode of Lockdown Science on CAMFM. <laughs>